This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Russ Whitfield as he preaches from Jonah 4 with his sermon titled, Truth in Advertising. Pastor Whitfield currently serves as pastor of Grace Mosaic in Washington, D.C., This sermon was originally preached at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen to Pastor Whitfield as he preaches from Jonah. Good evening, beloved of God. All right, I got my amen corner right here. Good evening, beloved of God. My name is Russ Whitfield, and I am pastor of Grace Mosaic Church, a congregation of the Grace DC Network, and I bring you greetings from Washington, D.C., and I also extend greetings to you uh, on behalf of Reformed University Fellowship, two institutions that I am privileged to serve in ministry. I count it a great honor to be with you this evening, to be able to preach God's word to you, and I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. And we are going to work through verses 1 through 11. Chapter 4 of the book of Jonah. This is God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. 
So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord God, we are grateful this evening that Jesus is the true preacher. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would go out with your word and that you would do that astonishing work of transforming the hearts of sinful people. Lord, I ask that you would take my five loaves and two fish and feed your people. Lord, help us not just to be hearers of your word, but also doers. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. When the Federal Trade Commission finds a case of fraud perpetuated against consumers, the agency files orders in federal court seeking an immediate and permanent cessation to stop scams and to prevent future scams. No matter where consumers see an advertisement, federal law says that ad must be truthful, not misleading, and backed by the evidence. The Federal Trade Commission enforces these truth in advertising laws, and they keep it steady across the board. In 2010, Kellogg was sued for falsely advertising that Rice Krispies could boost your immune system. In 2011, uh, New Balance was sued for falsely advertising that wearing their shoes could bring health benefits. In 2014, Red Bull was sued for falsely advertising that their energy drink could boost your cognitive function. And in the time of the Old Testament prophets, the Lord found a case of fraud perpetuated against the nations by his people Israel. And through his prophets, the Lord filed a covenant lawsuit with his people for the immediate and permanent order to stop the scam and to prevent future scams. Because Israel, for years, they advertised themselves as the people who were blessed in order to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. 
Israel advertised their community as a light to the nations, as a people who knew the Lord and desired to glorify his name throughout the earth. Israel advertised themselves as a people that was actually formed by God's gracious work of redemption in the Exodus. But by the time of the Old Testament prophets, their advertisement was not truthful, it was misleading, and it was not backed by the evidence. So the Lord sent the other prophets to issue direct calls to God's people, calling them to repent of their sin and to return to his mission. But through the prophet Jonah, the Lord creatively advances that same call by giving us the story of a self-righteous, nationalistic prophet, calling him to return to faithfulness, and in that same way, inviting us to the same. Jonah recoiled at the thought of God's grace going to those people. But the Lord always enforces a truth in advertising law when it comes to his community. And no matter where God's people show up, no matter where an expression of God's church is to be found, we all have to ask ourselves a very difficult question. Are we guilty of false advertising? Are we guilty of false advertising? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be committed to neighbor love and grace? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be committed to Christian ethics and the Christian gospel? Are we being truthful or misleading when we claim to be faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission? Are these claims of ours backed by the evidence? God's word comes to us this afternoon in order to hold us accountable to truth in advertising. And if we would be a faithful community, then we need to consider the truth about grace and the truth about mission. These are our two points for this evening. I am breaking all Presbyterian convention with a two-point sermon. But I'm going to give you your money's worth. Amen. All right. Our two points for this evening, the truth about grace and the truth about mission. So let's look at this first point, the truth about grace. Now, as chapter three closes and chapter four begins, we move from one surprising response to another. Surprisingly, Nineveh responds to the message of Jonah with repentance. And surprisingly, Jonah responds to the repentance of Nineveh with resentment. Take a look at the text. Verse 1 reads like this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. The prophet, the preacher, is angry. And why is he angry at the repentance of Nineveh? Verse 2 gives us the answer. Take a look. Put your eyes on the text. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah was angry because he did not want Nineveh to experience the grace and the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord. Jonah no longer wanted to live in a world where Ninevites could be redeemed. In other words, what we see in this text is that Jonah wanted grace for himself, but karma for Nineveh. You know that popular idea today that has come over this way from Eastern philosophy? Karma is that idea of a moral cause and effect in which bad people who do bad things get bad results down the road. And good people who do good things get good results down the road. Jonah wanted grace for himself, but karma for those people. But there is a great irony at work here in this text. We need to compare chapters 2 and 4 of the book of Jonah. And what we will see is this. When Jonah was in distress, when Jonah was sinking down, when Jonah was knocking on death's door, the soundtrack going through his head was, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Right? That's the soundtrack going through Jonah's head. But when Nineveh is in distress, when Nineveh is sinking down, when Nineveh is knocking on death's door, the soundtrack playing in Jonah's head is, I can't get no satisfaction. He wanted them to get smoked. He went outside of the city because he was expecting to see another Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to see God rain down fire on those heathens. That's what's going on with Jonah. But it's a great irony that we have in this text, isn't it? Because if you look at verse 2, what you notice is that Jonah is actually quoting scripture. He's quoting Exodus chapter 34. But he's quoting this passage of scripture with contempt. And if you go back and remember the original context of this passage, the original context is the golden calf incident where Israel was found to be in grievous sin before the Lord. And yet what they get from the Lord because of the work of a mediator is his grace and his mercy and his steadfast love and he relents from disaster. He loved it for his people and his kind. But he wanted karma for Nineveh. And what we see in this text is that Jonah was prone to minimize the sins of his people, but he was scandalized by the sins of those people. What we see in the text is that Jonah is pretty good at using the language of grace, but he is foreign to the life of grace. Jonah has this, this problem, right, where, where he has grace in his mouth, 
but he has karma in his heart. Jonah was good at talking about grace, but his core thoughts and attitudes betrayed grace. But look at the Lord's response to the prophet in verse 4. Take a look with me. The Lord is leading Jonah with a gentle yet penetrating question. Do you do well to be angry? Jonah, do you think that you hold the moral high ground on Nineveh? You are just like them. And of all the people on the planet who should love and rejoice in grace, it's you, Jonah. You are the rebel runaway prophet whose life was brought up from the pit. There should be no more mercy-loving person on the face of the earth than you, Jonah. There should be no one more captivated by compassion, no one who is happier to joyfully announce the redeeming love of God than you, Jonah. But why is this included in the narrative? I believe that this is in the narrative of Jonah because the Lord wants to put the people of Israel on the hook. Because in Jonah, they can see themselves. But he also wants to put you and I on the hook this evening. He wants to invite us to self-examination, to circumspection. Because listen, Jonah is orthodox. He knows the Westminster standards. He knows the book of church order. He knows the rules of assembly operation. And he knows Robert's rules. <laughs> if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> Jonah holds religious office. He was an officer, as it were. And he attended every presbytery meeting and every general assembly, and he even stayed in for the business portions all the way through. Come on, y'all, tell the truth, shame the devil. I see y'all. <laughs> He's a preacher. He ministered God's word and had quite a platform in Israel, we are led to believe in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He he had a lot of people listening to his podcast. And, and, and people even read his articles on the Sinai Coalition website. Jonah was well known, but here's the deal. None of these things were any protection from self-righteousness, ungodly nationalism, a blinding ethnocentrism, and simple unfamiliarity with the heart of God. And all of this hits just a little too close to home, doesn't it, family? Grace for me, karma for you. We are good at talking about grace, aren't we? But it's often the case that our core attitudes and convictions betray grace. It is often the case that we have grace in our mouths, but karma in our hearts. We too know what it's like. To, to, to do the talk about grace, but to be foreign to the life of grace. We can often use our Reformed orthodoxy as uh, an exemption from the work of love when it should be an inducement 
to the work of love. That's what Reformed Orthodoxy is supposed to produce in us. It is not a Christ-like ministry to sit back and cast clouds of disapproval over those sinners. And the reason why it is not a faithful ministry is because that is not what the Lord did to us. The book of Romans tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And the Lord loved us back to our senses and he poured out his most lavish gifts on us while we were still sinners. How gracious is God? <laughs> the prodigal would tell you that he embraces you in his love and he celebrates your return while you still stink like the pig pen. The Samaritan woman would tell you that he exposes you with his truth so that he can cover you with his love. Lazarus would tell you that he's the kind of savior who can merely call you by name and he can turn your funeral into a fiesta. Peter would tell you that he's the kind of savior that'll cook you breakfast and restore you even after you have betrayed him. And the apostle Paul would tell you, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Grace to save from any sin. Grace to mortify any sin. The same grace that is at work in my salvation is the grace that is transforming me from one degree of glory to another. What we see is that grace is the number one export of heaven. Amen. His grace is the number one export of heaven, and it ought to be the number one export of his church. There is a short story that was written by Ernest Hemingway, and it was called Capital of the World. And in this story, a Spanish father decides to reconcile with his son, who has run off to the city of Madrid. And so what this father does is he takes out an ad in the newspaper, and this is what that ad says. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Now, Paco is a common name in Spain. So when the father shows up at the appointed time in the appointed place, he sees a hundred young men who are looking for their father. And I'm here to tell you that our neighbors are desperate for grace. They are starving for grace. And we know the ever-living source of grace. We know the never-ending fountain of grace. And the Lord is calling us to be that refreshment, that oasis in a world that is built on karma. Your neighbors are longing for a taste. And it's our call to give it to them because after all, of all the people on the planet who should love and rejoice in compassion, it's Christians. We were the runaway rebel prophet people whose lives were brought up from the pit. There should be no more mercy-loving people on the face of the earth than us. 
There should be no people more captivated by compassion, no people that is happier to joyfully announce the redeeming love of God than us. To paraphrase Bob Goff, we ought to be giving away love and grace like we're made of it. You don't have to be afraid that we're going to come into a scarcity of grace. Grace is not a zero-sum game where more grace for them means less grace for me. No, we live in an economy of abundance because of the Lord's generosity to us. We don't have to fear running out of grace. But another important point that I think we need to take into consideration in order to get the force of this text is we have to take into consideration Jonah's ethnocentrism and nationalism. Jonah was only out for the benefit of his group, and this resulted in a spirit of antagonism toward those people. He didn't really care about the concerns of those people. He didn't care about the pains of those people. He was not moved to the heart at their sufferings and their trials and their losses. He could only see the glories of his tribe and he could only see the evils of that tribe. He believed that his people had the market cornered on grace and truth and those people had the market cornered on sin and error. But here's what we need to see in the text. His ethnocentrism, which is putting his culture at the center of his framework and never challenging it, his ethnocentrism put him at odds with the Lord. He lacked self-awareness and was unable to see how he had conflated his faith and his theological vision with his cultural preferences. His cultural preferences we get the indication, had the force of divine imperative. His nationalism conditioned his faith to the degree that his faith was no longer recognizable to the Lord of the nations. But look at how the text exposes his thinking as errant and foolish. The narrator is mocking Jonah throughout this entire narrative. It's revealing his foolishness. It's almost cartoonish. Jonah wanted a God made in his cultural image. Jonah wanted a God who shared his parochial sensibilities. But what the text gives us is a God who tenderly retrieves his people to widen our lens and bring us back to the mission so that we can gather the nations into his loving arms. What we need to see is that the trajectory of scripture is that God sends his people to those people so that those people can become his people. That's what God's out to do. He's out to send his people to those people, whoever those people are for you. We all have a category of those people. But God wants to send his people to those people so that those people can become his people. This is the truth about grace. But if we would be a truth and advertising community, we also need to consider the truth about mission, which brings us to our final point. Y'all see the trick why I do two points? That didn't feel that far away, did it, right? The truth, that's a black preaching trick, by the way. That's it. Just got one point. Oh, Lord, it's going to be a long point, right? <laughs> the truth about mission. 
At the very beginning of this book, we see that the Lord called Jonah to cross borders. And what's interesting is that when the Lord put a prophetic call upon a prophet, they usually did their ministry from within the borders of Israel. But Jonah is given the call to cross borders. He's called to cross a religious border. He's called to cross an ethnic border. He's called to cross a geographic border. So when he runs away to Tarshish, what we have to understand is that he's not just running from a generic call to go do ministry. He is specifically running away from his call to cross-cultural ministry. He's running away from the call to cross-cultural mission. But all through the story, the Lord continues to press in on him in love. And in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 4, the Lord gives Jonah an object lesson in compassion. And then the text ends with a haunting question from the Lord. The text says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city. The book of Jonah ends in attention. God is calling out to Israel saying, finish the story. Write the last chapter of my story by taking my gospel to the nations. Let every tribe and tongue know of my covenant love carry out my mission to the world. But Israel would fail because like Jonah, they were self-righteous, intent on serving themselves and their kind. They lived in a state of fearful protectionism, recoiling in suspicion from everyone who wasn't like them, everyone who seemed to threaten their way of life. But what we see is that their faithless, disgraceful way of life needed to be threatened by the true grace of God so that they could lay hold of true life. That way of life needed to be threatened in the most beautiful and powerful way by the power of grace divine. And that is why God would not allow the story to end there. Though Jonah would stew in resentment, though Israel would fail the mission, the future of God's mission and the future of God's people would be decided by one true Israelite, by the prophet who was announced in advance by Moses. This one would be faithful where all of Israel had failed in its cross-cultural mission. He would become the prophet who crossed the borders that Jonah refused to cross, and he would cross far more hostile borders than Jonah could ever conceive of, because this one was willing to cross the border from heaven to earth. He was willing to cross the border from the unrighteous to the righteous. He was willing to cross the border from the land of the living to the land of the dead. One greater than Jonah is here. 
and his name is Jesus. And what we see is that Jonah becomes the foil for the manifold excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see is that Jesus is the truth in advertising of heaven. And if you don't mind, I want to tell you how Jesus is the truth in advertising of the entirety of Scripture. Because you see, the Scriptures advertise a crushing of the serpent's head. But in Jesus, we see the victory. The scriptures advertised a blessing that would go out to all the families of the earth. But in Jesus, we obtain that blessing. The scriptures advertised a way out of Egypt. And Jesus is the way out of a darker Egypt. The scriptures advertise bread from heaven on the wilderness journey. And Jesus is the bread of life. The scriptures advertise that God would dwell in the midst of his people. And Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. The scriptures advertise atonement for sin and Jesus became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures advertised a priesthood that would minister before the Lord in the holy place on behalf of the people. And now Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high and he ever lives to intercede for us. The scriptures advertised a king who would defend the weak, who would execute justice, and would live and reign in peace. And now Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. He's the king. The scriptures advertise a meal that could be had without money and without cost. And now Jesus is the host in the sacrament and his grace is the meal as he nourishes us on our way to the wedding feast of the Lamb. The scriptures advertise that a word would go out over the valley of dry bones bringing new life. And now Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the resurrection and the life who has made these dry bones live. The scriptures advertise that every knee would bow and every tongue confess allegiance to God. And now we as his church, we testify with the global church. We testify with the saints in communist Russia. We testify with the underground church in China. We testify with the saints on the continent of Africa. We testify with the Afro-Caribbean brothers and sisters. We testify with the Latin American saints that thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and God's people said amen amen what we have to see is that every advertisement of scripture, every holy institution, every office, every prophecy, every promise has been fulfilled and expressed in Jesus. He is the truth in advertising of scripture. But before I go to my seat, I wanna leave you with one word, beloved. And it's this, we have been united to Christ by faith. We live in vital union with the Lord Jesus, who is the truth in advertising of heaven. So, 
If we live in vital union with the one who is truth in advertising, then we got to know that a truth in advertising savior wants to produce a truth in advertising church. So if we're advertising grace, then we got to be showing it. If we're advertising love, then we must be pouring it out. If we're advertising forgiveness, then we must be extending it. If we're advertising community, then we must be interdependent. If we're advertising hospitality, then we must be setting the table. If we're advertising life in the spirit, then we must be renouncing the spirit of the age. We must be renouncing the spirit of division so that we can hold up the lordship of, the, of our Jesus Christ by bearing the fruit of the spirit. God wants a truth in advertising community. And the way that we work that out is by running all of our excuses to the gospel logic. In other words, anytime we are tempted to mistreat this glorious royal image bearer in front of us, we have to ask ourselves a question. If the Lord treated me like I want to treat them, where would I be? But praise God, he didn't treat me like I would treat them, so therein lies the power for me to treat them like I know something about the grace of the Lord. The truth about mission is that the love of God our Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of the triune God is most powerfully and beautifully displayed by a truth in advertising community. So let's make it our prayer and our commitment that the gospel witness of the PCA will be truthful not misleading and backed by the evidence. Amen. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.